I'm Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, a lot of things in between. Joining me today is the show's co-host, producer, my friend, Joe Armstrong. Joe, what's on our docket today? Hello, Jessica. Nice to talk to you. Today, we are going to discuss another front in the battle over abortion rights. We are also going to discuss the political fate of a pair of unrelated congressional representatives, one of whom is believed to be on the shortlist for Speaker of the House, provided the Republicans win the House this coming November. But we're going to open today's show with the fate of a federal mask mandate on airplanes and other forms of mass transit. Jessica, we've watched this pandemic roll past us. We're still in the midst of it. We've watched mask mandates fall around the country for the last few months as the Omicron variant of COVID-19 has waned, but a mask mandate on airplanes and other transit channels where people are packed more tightly together remained in the midst of all that. It was set to expire recently, and then as expected, the Biden administration extended that mandate just last week or the week before, and then in waltzed a federal judge to muck up the work. So Jessica, what are the details? What happened here? I love the image of her waltzing in and just saying, no, I don't think so, which if you read the 59-page legal opinion, as I did, uh, it doesn't feel so much like a waltz as a death metal um, jam when it comes to the power of the CDC and federal agencies. So basically, she said two things. She said the CDC exceeded its authority, that it went beyond its congressionally granted authority under a federal law. And it said the CDC, she said the CDC went about this in the wrong way, that they violated procedures, that they suspended notice and comment, and they didn't have good cause to do so, even even though um, what they said is actually, as it turns out, we're in the middle of a pandemic and that should be uh, enough for good cause. She did not agree. Okay, you spilled the beans on one thing. We know that it's a she, Jessica, as a female judge. Who is this judge and what was the opinion that she issued? So her name is Judge Catherine Kimball Mizell, and she's a very young judge. She was nominated to the bench at the end of the Trump administration. Uh, she's still in her early 30s, I believe. She is a she was confirmed during the lame duck session of the Senate. Uh, she's a member of the Federalist Society. She served in the Department of Justice during the Trump administration. She served on the Supreme Court as a clerk to Justice Clarence Thomas. And she is a very conservative jurist. And we were, are going to expect that she will be on the bench in that position or perhaps elevated for decades to come. Right. And I know that she is American Bar Association rated but not qualified now that she's waded into this mess or strolled or come hammering in, however you described it a few moments ago. And forgive me for asking this question in this manner, but what on earth is up with her and the concept of sanitation? This is something that came up in her opinion. Her opinion seems to contain some vague and circuitous logic. Am I right about that? Um I don't know that it's circuitous so much as it's illogical logic, but that, again, just my perspective on this. So I will say that she was rated not qualified by the American Bar Association, and a lot has been made of that in her, I don't want to say in her defense, but in the interest of full disclosure, it really was based on the fact that she just didn't have any trial experience and that she has not been a member of the bar for very long. It wasn't based on her demeanor. It wasn't based on her intellect. It was based on the fact that she simply didn't have the number of practice years that one would 
hope that you would have before you become a district court judge. So you asked me about the opinion. I will say I had a little gut check with myself where the opinion came out Monday morning. I had to get on the radio very quickly and talk about it. And I decided that I was going to read the opinion first and look at the author of the opinion next, just to make sure again, that I had a little bias check with myself. I read the opinion as I wrote in an MSNBC column, I think about three minutes in, I started whisper screaming to myself, um, you know, what, why is this happening? Why is the judge saying this? How can you possibly think that this should be how we read this federal law? How could it be, Joe, that the Center for Disease Control does not have the power to control diseases? So essentially, she looked at this word to sanitize. She looked at other words and other measures. And what she concluded here is that we should define these words very, very narrowly. And she said that when it comes to sanitizing something, that could include, quote, active measures to cleanse something or preserving the cleanliness of something. The second option would allow for mask mandates. The first option would not. She coincidentally chose the second option. So all of that to say, I read this lengthy opinion and I kept thinking, why, why would somebody read this language so narrowly? And I think the answer is, I don't like saying this, but I think she wanted to come to this conclusion. Reverse engineering is what we call that sometimes, Jessica. Now, yes. maybe you saw them too. I saw some videos of people on planes singing songs and spinning their masks around over their head while some very, let's say, nonplussed looking people on the plane kept their masks on. So we know this is a hot button issue. People don't like wearing masks. I don't particularly like wearing a mask myself, but I'm a grown up and I do it because it's the right thing to do. But setting aside everyone's personal feelings on this, this is a public health issue. And there are also other implications to striking down this mask mandate that may affect how the CDC can manage other public health crises in the future. Am I right about that as well? Absolutely right. So there's a portion of her opinion, which I don't want to say it's the most troubling or most dangerous, but it was particularly troubling, where she says, I'm not going to defer to the CDC in their interpretation of regulations that they enforce. Now, there's a concept in the law, something called Chevron deference. And it's basically the idea that when it comes to federal agencies, and they're interpreting regulations that they are then enforcing, we owe them some level of deference. She said that the interpretations here were not rational and that we did not owe this federal agency any deference in how they were interpreting, again, the regulations that they are the ones to enforce. That has implications beyond this case. In addition, even if we drop the mask mandates tomorrow, we all know how this pandemic has gone, which meaning up and down, and we know that it might not be the last pandemic that we see in our lifetime. So it is important, as your question asks, it is important to try and clarify what these terms in the federal law mean. And by clarify, I really mean to correct her unduly narrow ruling. And so, yes, I think that's why this is not just about the mask mandate, even, of course, though we think that that's an important public health issue, but it's about how we interpret this language and it's about whether or not we defer to federal agencies. 
Okay, so there are other angles to this. There's a political angle to this as well, Jessica. So where do you think the Biden administration actually sits on this? Now, we all watch this. They seem to drag their feet a bit when they went to file that appeal to extend that mask mandate in transportation on planes, etc., and elsewhere. Do you think this judge did something like provide cover for the Biden administration to just tacitly let this mandate expire without having to do it themselves? If you do any research at all, polls show that the public is pretty evenly divided on mandates, although the mask mandate on airplanes remains more popular than mask mandates just in the general populace in other places. So do you think that was one of those like <laughs> you do the dirty work for us kind of situations? I mean, it is entirely possible that there were members of the administration. I have no inside information, but it is entirely possible that some of them were like, well, you know, now somebody else did it for us. We don't have to take the blame. And she's a good figure to, frankly, place the blame onto for certain members of the Biden administration and certain people who support the Biden administration, all of which is to say, yes, she might have given them some political cover. And I thought their response was really interesting. First, it was basically, we're looking at it. Then the Biden administration said, well, we'll appeal to the 11th Circuit if the CDC says this is still necessary. So again, kind of let's put this decision in somebody else's lap. The CDC said it was necessary. The Biden administration said, okay, we're appealing. It's not exactly the immediate and strong rebuke of what I view as a wrong-headed decision uh, that one would hope. Now, I think there's the possibility that they don't want to have another bad decision from the 11th Circuit. So this opinion will be appealed to the 11th Circuit. There are a lot of conservative judges on the 11th Circuit. It's entirely possible that you draw a conservative three-judge panel and they uphold this ruling. That means that it's not just one district court judge. Now suddenly it's a decision that's been affirmed by the Court of Appeals. And then of course it could potentially go up to the Supreme Court where I think we know enough to know. We don't know what would happen before the Supreme Court. Again, even though you and I and many others might think that this is an incorrect legal interpretation, that doesn't mean it's a done deal that the Supreme Court would reject this legal interpretation. So I I understand both politically and legally there were reasons that they didn't jump on this, but you know, certainly in an ideal world, you read this opinion and you immediately say, absolutely not. We're going to court and we're asking for an emergency stay so that this particular decision does not stay in effect. Let's remove her specifically from this conversation and think about judges who make what might be construed as questionable rulings such as this. Can a judge be removed? Are we stuck with a judge like her or her specifically? May her or someone like her wind up on the Supreme Court someday if Trump himself winds up, God forbid, moving back into 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue in January of 2025. What's the provision for that? The answer is that she could. And when it comes to federal judges, they are appointed for life. And the only way to remove them is through impeachment proceedings. We know that those are very rare, very difficult for impeachment proceedings to be successful. And frankly, I think it It should be rare. We do want to be very careful that we don't get into a situation where we start impeaching federal judges because we don't agree with their opinions. That's not to say that we should never use that, but only to say that it should be a rarely used legal mechanism. Now, could she be elevated to the circuit court or even the Supreme Court? 
I think that's possible. Again, she has a resume that in some ways looks like some of the resumes by Supreme Court justices. She worked in the Department of Justice. She clerked on the Supreme Court. Um, Now, she didn't go to Ivy League schools like many of, or I think all of the current justices, but I think it's entirely possible that we would see her name on shortlists. Okay, so maybe on Passing Judgment, episode 15,425, we will be talking about Justice Mizell somewhere. But Jessica, before we move on to our next topic, what is the latest on this? I know there were more recent developments toward the latter part of this week. And what is your best guess as far as the end game? We know that this is a public health issue, but this is also a political issue, and it is indeed an election year. The Democrats need votes to maintain their slim majorities in the House and the Senate, but Republicans need votes in turn to flip them to their side. With public sentiment divided on masks and infection rates slowly rising again, death rates have plateaued for the moment, but they're still holding at approximately 500 a day. That's no small amount of people to lose every single day. And a populace seemingly content to accept COVID-19 as endemic going forward for better or for worse. It is almost impossible to know, but legally speaking, Jessica... Do we know where this ball is going to stop rolling in terms of mask mandates on planes and elsewhere? You said so many important things that bear repeating, but you asked me, legally speaking, where is this going? So it's going to the 11th Circuit. I don't think at this point we know the judges that will hear the case. Unfortunately, I do think we are in a moment where it's very important to know which president nominated these judges, and that gives us a good indication about where they might be going, not It doesn't tell us the whole story. It doesn't make me happy that that is a big part of the equation, but I think it is, and I think we can't ignore it. Um, At that point, we'll see who wins in the 11th Circuit, and then we will see whether or not the case is appealed all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, of course, doesn't have to take the case, and I can think of plenty of reasons why they might not want to take it. If the case is appealed to the Supreme Court and they decide not to take it, the lower court decision stands, meaning the 11th Circuit, whatever they decide, uh, that decision will stand. What's interesting, Joe, is obviously our listeners know we're both based in Los Angeles. And as this was happening, I think it was a few days later, Los Angeles County said, we are actually going to re-implement mask mandates in public transit and in airports. And I had a number of questions about, can Los Angeles do this? Can counties, other counties do this? The answer is yes. As we've learned throughout the pandemic, states, counties, cities, they have so-called police powers, which doesn't mean the power of the local police department. It means power to create laws to further the health, safety, welfare, and morals of their residents. That includes things like mask mandates. So states, again, county, cities, they have a different source of power to implement these particular restrictions. And they can, in fact, go further than the federal government in most areas. The federal government has to find a different source of power and typically provides a floor, but not a ceiling, meaning, again, that um, states can be more protective of health uh, than the federal government. So we're living in a bit, Joe, of a patchwork for now. 
Right, and it's something we're not really going to talk about on today's episode, but I did also note, if anybody wants to look up this story, that the FAA is extending the penalties for people acting poorly on planes, basically permanently. So I don't know what that's going to mean in terms of people wearing masks or not wearing masks. You can't tell someone to wear a mask if there's no law to wear a mask, but we will keep an eye on that and keep everyone informed if that becomes a bigger deal. So thank you for all of that, Jessica. Let us now move on to our next topic, another light topic, abortion rights. Not a laughing matter, but as we've discussed many times, federal abortion protections are most assuredly going to be extinct at the conclusion of this current Supreme Court term, or at least drastically different from the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey standards that we've been living under for nearly half a century. Jessica, tell me what's happening here. I think you're exactly right. So as a reminder to our listeners, the court uh, heard oral arguments in the beginning of December in a case out of Mississippi. Mississippi banned abortion after 15 weeks of pregnancy. That is unconstitutional under the Roe and Casey framework that you just talked about. Very briefly, the current framework is that states can limit pre-viability abortions, but they cannot create undue burdens for women. Obviously, a complete ban is more than an undue burden, and a um, 15 weeks comes earlier in a pregnancy than viability. So there's no way that Mississippi's law could, in fact, be constitutional under Roe and Casey. Uh, I'm not going to rehash everything that we talked about with respect to that case other than to say I absolutely think that there are five and likely six votes right now to overturn Roe and Casey. And um, that would mean that there's no constitutionally protected right to obtain a pre-viability abortion in this country, and it would leave the matter to states. You heard Justice Kavanaugh during the oral arguments um, say something like, shouldn't we just be neutral? Shouldn't we invoke judicial neutrality? That's code for we're going to overturn Roe and Casey and we'll leave this to the states, which in the short term would mean that women would live in two very different Americas, some women where they have access to an abortion and other women in about half of the states, I think, where there is no access to abortion or very, very, very limited. And we can talk about what limited means. And right, I know we've talked about the fate of abortion when it comes to the states many, many, many times on our podcast here, both with me and with people who study these things professionally for their career. And they hinge on these laws coming out of places like Mississippi and the law in Texas, SB8. But we also know that other states have been riding those states' coattails and implementing their own exceedingly strict anti-abortion laws, right? It's not just Mississippi and Texas. It's not. And I think all of the red states are preparing for what feels completely inevitable at this point um, with respect to the Roe-Casey framework, meaning it's inevitable. I think that it will be overturned Uh, just in the last 10 days, I believe, Kentucky, Oklahoma, Florida, all implemented very uh, restrictive or proposed very restrictive abortion laws. We're going to see more of this. And we're going to see, I think, I don't know if I'm going to say before July 4th, but sometime in July, we're going to see about half of the states just outlaw or severely, severely restrict access to an abortion. All righty. And this brings us to the heart of the matter when it comes to this particular topic on this particular episode of Passing Judgment, which is there's a recent change by the FDA. So, Jessica, can you tell us about this change and how does it factor into abortion rights, given all the things we've talked about for the last few minutes? 
Yes. So during the pandemic, there was a FDA regulation that changed that said that women could have telehealth appointments to obtain abortion pills. It used to be that you had to go in in person. Now, a telehealth appointment obviously has implications beyond just the pandemic to the extent that you live in Texas, let's say, and Texas outlaws abortion. Well, maybe you could have a telehealth appointment with a doctor outside of Texas. He or she could then prescribe the abortion pills and then you could take them. Now, there's been a quick response to that, which is that states are already seeing that this is potentially a possibility for women. And what states are doing is they're cracking down on the use and distribution of these pills. The other thing to remember is that while the federal government typically regulates um, drug, legal drug use, that it's states that regulate doctors. And it is state law which indicates that you need to follow the law where your patient is. So what we have here, Joe, is really this kind of conflict where the federal government is allowing for something. The federal government has a program which allows for telehealth visits to obtain abortion pills. And then you have states that are basically, in my mind, thwarting, conflicting, interfering with those programs and saying, no, you cannot use or distribute abortion pills in these states. So it's a bit of a, I wrote a MSNBC column about this. It's a bit of a classic matchup between federal and state power. All right. So hypothetically speaking, if these FDA rules remain as they currently are, which I can't see that they will, what's to prevent the new administration or some administration down the road from simply just changing the FDA rules again and rendering these laws moot? It's just leaving us where we were. Well, I will say very briefly when it comes to these agency rules, one, agencies have some independence, but two, what we've seen and what actually there's a case peripherally dealing with this next week in the Supreme Court is that you have to unwind these regulations the right way, that you can't do it in an irrational or an arbitrary or capricious manner. So there is at least something um, to act as a bit of a guard. But it is certainly the case that elections have consequences and that new administrations can set new priorities. Okay. So I know this is a question I think I ask a lot. It seems like a dinner party question you hear a lot of people say with any given topic. So is it possible that this will simply work its way up to the Supreme Court and then suffer the same fate as other abortion protections that they are currently poised to face? So potentially this could work its way up to the Supreme Court, but it's actually a very different legal issue. So for Roe and Casey and the Mississippi law that we were talking about, the Dobbs case, it's really a question of whether or not this right to privacy that we have recognized as being protected in the Constitution, whether or not it protects reproductive choice, the right to obtain an abortion. It's a different question when it comes to these abortion pills, which is it's really more of a question about the conflict between the federal program, which again allows for telehealth visits and dispensing of abortion pills, versus the state laws that would try to bar those practices. And so that's a different question that brings up issues of preemption, but not really the right to privacy. 
Okay, Jessica, when you talk to Americans and their answers and opinions on abortion have fluctuated some over recent decades, but support for abortion rights overall, they remain strong. According to research by Pew, and I'm paraphrasing here, 59% of Americans say that abortion should be legal in all or most cases, while 39% say it should be illegal in all or most cases. And pro-life sentiment is strongest, with 77% of white evangelical Protestants saying that abortion should be illegal in all or most cases. If you look at other data, uh, Americans are becoming less religious, but the Supreme Court is becoming more conservative over time. So where does that leave us as the populace? With a populace and a court that are increasingly out of step with one another, at least it appears that way. You know, that's a fascinating question. I talk about this a little bit with my constitutional law class, and it's really a question of, is it a problem if the federal judiciary and specifically the Supreme Court is out of step with public opinion? I mean, there are some instances, of course, where we can look at what the public allowed, uh, what the public wanted in some cases, what some members of the public wanted, like segregation. And we can say we're very happy that the Supreme Court was out of step with popular will. So I do think we should be careful that we don't want judges to rule based on what is in what is popular with the majority. And almost by definition, we want them to be cognizant of minority rights, which may make them unpopular. But I'll just leave it to say it is one of these big questions as to whether or not the court should have a role in following public opinion, leading public opinion, or whether or not that should just be completely irrelevant. You're a college law professor. I imagine there are classes taught on that very topic. Jessica, am I right about that? Indeed. Indeed you do. Okay, let's move on. We have a couple of stories about congressional representatives. The first of which is the following. Republican Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene became the first lawmaker to testify about their role, that's lawmakers' roles, in the January 6th insurrection late this week. She faced questioning under oath in a hearing in an Atlanta courtroom scheduled to determine if she should be constitutionally barred from running for re-election due to possible involvement in fomenting that insurrection from January 6th. Some of the things she said on the stand weren't surprising at all. She repeated false claims that Donald Trump won the 2020 election due to massive voter fraud. So, Jessica, what's the story here? Who put her there for this questioning? Why was there a hearing? So there were voters in Georgia, people that are seeking to disqualify her from being on the ballot. They brought this case. This was an administrative hearing before a state court judge. And um, they're the ones that brought us to this place. Okay, so now let's get to the nitty-gritty here. There was a moment when a lawyer for the challengers asked her about a social media specific detail, and they said, quote, Did you like a post that said it's quicker that a bullet to the head would be a quicker way to remove Nancy Pelosi from the role of speaker? Now, CNN, the network, took some time to pay some poor staffer or interns to scour hundreds of posts from Marjorie Taylor Greene last year in 2021, and they tallied repeated support for executing prominent Democratic politicians in 2018 and 2019. Green was elected to Congress just after that in 2020, which seems like forever ago. The researchers found that Green liked, that's a Facebook thing, a specific post from January of 2019 that said, quote, a bullet to the head would be quicker to remove Pelosi. So there's some data to back that up. And what did Marjorie Taylor Green say in response to that? 
Quote, I have had many people manage my social media account over the years. I have no idea who liked that. So, Jessica, how did this start? What does it say about this in the Constitution? Well, it doesn't say anything about social media in the Constitution, obviously. But what we're talking about here is a provision of the 14th Amendment, a Civil War provision of the 14th Amendment, that tells us what, frankly, I wish we didn't already need to be told, which is that if you're an American official and you take an oath to uphold the Constitution, you should not be able to hold public office if you are, quote, engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States of America. And so that's really what we're looking at here. We're looking at this old Civil War era provision. We know what this was about. This was about members of the Confederacy. This was about a war that almost literally ripped our country in half and deciding whether or not this provision can apply to our modern day circumstance, which I still can't believe I'm saying this sentence, but where we do have members of Congress and there is a, I think, very real question as to whether or not they supported an insurrection in the Capitol on January 6th. The idea, again, being if you can draw a line between what Marjorie Taylor Greene said and did and the insurrection, could that conduct then fall under the provision of the 14th Amendment such that she could not appear on the ballot? Okay, so we know what the challengers are saying. How about her defense team? Some Republicans have argued that the Democrats are trying to save democracy by destroying it. There's some kind of apocryphal quote about that. How protected is Marjorie Taylor Greene's free speech when it comes to this sort of thing? Well, I think this is something that we've heard a lot with respect to the insurrection cases, which is that the defense oftentimes is, well, my freedom of speech. So the government can't punish me. The government can't remove me from the ballot. The government can't do something to me as a result of my speech, particularly my political speech. So a lot of her defense, which interestingly is by a lawyer named James Bopp, who brought a lot of the um, campaign finance cases that eventually unraveled much of the landmark campaign finance law, McCain-Feingold, much of her defense is First Amendment, First Amendment, First Amendment, which is what I've heard him say for years now when it comes to uh, trying to limit the influence of money in politics, which is First Amendment, First Amendment, First Amendment. And so part of her defense is like you can't make that connection between me and the insurrection. And part of it is what I said is entitled to protection. Okay, so we've talked about this in the context of the Civil War, which has been quite some time since that has happened. Obviously, no one's alive that would remember that sort of thing. But has this happened before more recently? So there's been a similar effort to try and disqualify uh, Congressman Madison Cawthorn. And we should note that as we're recording this episode, there's breaking news from Politico that there are pictures apparently of Madison Cawthorn dressed up in what looks to be like uh, women's costumes at a um, raucous party, I'll say. I think that's maybe the best way to describe that breaking news, which I bring up only because of certain things that Congressman Cawthorn has said. And he said that Washington, D.C. is a place filled with corruption. And I think he's used the word orgies. And so normally I'm not sure that it would be fair to discuss those photos of him. Um, but I think in this case, he's kind of 
put those questions out into the public forum. So yes, we have seen similar efforts and, um, it's interesting. We are going back to civil war era laws because of where we are in the country right now to try and disqualify people from serving in public office. It's a long way to go back, Jessica. So casting a shadow over all the proceedings this week is Marjorie Taylor Greene's BFF, her best friend forever, Donald Trump. After all, it was his big lie about the 2020 election that led to the insurrection. And what has he had to say about all this? Uh, here's a quote here. Let's see. The gov- quote, the governor of Georgia, Brian Kemp, and Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger, perhaps in collusion with the radical left Democrats, have allowed a horrible thing to happen to a very popular Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene. She is now going through hell in their attempt to unseat her just more of an election mess in Georgia. So, Jessica, we know congressional representatives have two-year terms which means that she is up for re-election just this autumn. Now, for her and her campaign, this is the opposite of running out the clock. So what do you think the likelihood is that this challenge will succeed? So this is really tricky. And I want to remind people, look, listeners of Passing Judgment are smart. They know what I'm already going to say, which is this isn't a question of do we like what she did? Do we think that what she said and did, Congresswoman Taylor Greene, is acceptable? This is a question of... Can you make this connection between what she said and what happened in the Capitol? Can you characterize it as an insurrection? And then can you fit it within that provision of the 14th Amendment? None of that is easy. So I'm going to kind of do what I often do in terms of can you predict what's going to happen, which is to obfuscate a little bit and to say there's also, we didn't talk about it, it's a little bit in the weeds, there's a little bit of a timing issue as to whether or not, in fact, if the suit is successful, if it would apply to this election or the next election. So I'll just say it's these are, I think, important cases to bring for a number of reasons. They're certainly not frivolous, but they're also certainly difficult to be successful. Okay, and that brings us to our final topic on today's episode about another congressional representative. And Jessica, if you were to look at my notes as I was scribbling things down for this topic this morning and writing about this, I wrote something to the effect of, is Kevin McCarthy up the creek? But I used a different word there. (laughs) So before we go, let's talk about the political career of another Trump loyalist. That's California Republican Congressman Kevin McCarthy. He made the news this week after an audio tape, which is probably digital, went public involving a phone call on the 10th of January of 2021, right after the insurrection. In this tape, McCarthy can be heard saying that Trump should resign. That's something that you can't get away with saying in Trump v. Washington. This was in the immediate aftermath, like I said, of the violent and deadly insurrection on January the 6th. Anyone with a memory, which is most of us, might remember that a number of Republicans were more openly critical of Donald Trump, who was president at the time, as they'd ever been during that period. Now, this little Detente didn't last long as the impeachment effort failed in the Senate and Trump remains firmly in charge of the GOP to this very minute. So there have been countless is Trump fading deadline pieces written in the media over the last year, but his influence remains definitively intact. So McCarthy has had aspirations to be Speaker of the House should Republicans take over the House as they very well may do this November. So does that leave McCarthy, for lack of a better word, up the creek, Jessica? I don't think so. So I'm going to answer this question in kind of a weird way, which is, Joe, you know, because we're friends on and off the air, I'm not a great sleeper. And sometimes I do what you're not supposed to do when you can't sleep, which is I turn something on my phone 
and so the you know light goes in my eyes, and then I start following a story. And I'm rewatching The West Wing, and it's fascinating to me to look back at what they assume would be the end of a political career in The West Wing. And let's remember, it's a long time ago, but. It's not ancient history. The show basically aired over seven seasons about 20 years ago. And there's an episode I was just watching where the majority leader is running for president and somebody asks him the question, why do you want to be president? And he basically word salads it. He says something like, innovation, great country, really want to help lead. And it doesn't make any sense. And the staff is just giddy the staff of the West Wing of the Bartlett administration because they think, oh, this is going to make a big impact. And as I was watching the episode, Joe, I just couldn't help but think, oh, that wouldn't be disqualifying now. I'm not sure that people would necessarily blink at that, you know, given what the types of word salads that we grew accustomed to. So all of that to say, I think that Kevin McCarthy has a loyal voting base. He has seniority. Um, And I'm not sure that this is the death knell for him. Obviously, it's different when something is on tape and you can play that over and over again and it appears to directly contradict other things he said. But I guess we're not in Kansas anymore. We're not in the West Wing anymore. Indeed, setting aside the trials and tribulations of the fictitious Bartlett administration, let's get back to the reality of the story a little bit before we kick on out of here. The story got rolling with a New York Times piece written by Jonathan Martin and Alex Burns in which they published that McCarthy, one out of three, described Trump's conduct related to January 6th as, quote, atrocious and totally wrong. He also called on Trump to resign, as I mentioned before, and he also inquired about the mechanism for invoking the 25th Amendment to remove him from power. Now, another incriminating part of the recording is a response that McCarthy had to his congressional colleague Liz Cheney, once a Republican star, now kind of on the outs due to Trumpiness. I mean, you guys all know him, too. Do you think he'd ever back away? But what I think I'm going to do is I'm going to call him. The only discussion I would have with him is that I think this impeachment resolution will pass, and it would be my recommendation that he should resign. So McCarthy is currently doing the Cleopatra dance and denying the whole thing, despite the audio evidence that you can all go listen to yourselves. It's all over the Internet. So the Washington rumor mill continues to grind away on the story as we're talking right now. We've all read time and time again that Trump values loyalty, and we've also watched him turn on a dime on former allies. He is anything but gracious when parting ways with former allies, and he's not particularly gracious with anything else for that matter. So it appears that McCarthy's fate rests on Trump's particular mood. It is hard to imagine him getting his coveted speaker gig if he falls from grace in Trumplandia. And then again, Like you were saying before, people like Lindsey Graham have managed to survive flip-flopping their support for Donald Trump at various times, Jessica. So before we get out of here, do you have anything to add to this story? I'm not even sure what to even think about this. I just saw this picture that somebody posted on Twitter, and it was very funny. And it was a picture of um, Congresswoman Liz Cheney smiling and basically pointing behind her to a house that was on fire. I am not, let me repeat, I am not in any way insinuating that Congresswoman Cheney is a pyromaniac or that she is happy that anybody's house burns. But what I'm saying is I think there's this little moment or maybe more than a moment of her saying could you go ahead and listen to me? I am a real conservative. I am a real Republican. And I am here saying I don't want this to happen to the party. I don't like the hypocrisy. I don't like the lies. And I 
I just can't stop thinking about her and how I feel that much of what she has said will ultimately be vindicated and is being vindicated right before our very eyes. Uh, What about you, Joe? You know, before we go, Jessica, there's one personal anecdote I want to add to this particular story because, you know, we were making this podcast all through the 2020 election to the lead up to it, through the election day, through the scotch that I drank on the day that they counted it for Biden that Saturday morning. All the way through to that insurrection, I know that very morning you and I were both nervous about what was going to transpire when the election results were due to be certified because we both agreed that that was Trump's kind of last chance. He'd been telling the big lie for about two months at that point, so he's not going to go gentle into that good night. So we were talking. I was walking my dog, and uh, I called you up, or you called me up, but we were trying to figure out when we were going to do our taping for that day. And you said, hey, you better get home. This uh, this is getting a little out of hand. So I was only about five minutes walk home with the dog. I shuffled on off to home, turned on the TV, and it was tear gas, and it was barricades being tossed around and the breaking of windows. Like you, I'm sure you couldn't believe what you were watching. I couldn't believe what I was watching. I won't use the tired. It was like a movie, but it was very much like reality. And there was one particular moment. I was flipping back and forth between channels, and I had settled on CBS News. And they managed, you know, if we all remember, Jessica, the a lot of the congressional representatives and senators and people who were there, staff, were working that day in the Capitol building, were ushered into an undisclosed location while the melee raged in the Capitol. We all know what happened there. And they got Kevin McCarthy, Representative Kevin McCarthy, on the telephone, and they asked him what his thoughts were. Now, remember, at this particular moment, he's essentially sheltering in place in an undisclosed location nearby the Capitol. So his very life and the lives of his staff and colleagues is being imminently threatened at that time. And I remember listening to McCarthy. Now, he's a California representative. He is not my specific representative, but I live in California. So I paid special attention to what he had to say, also given his position in the Republican Party and knowing that he's gunning to be speaker. So I just remember him equivocating. You know, he could tell he was a little scared. It was in his voice. We've talked to two people that were in the Capitol that day, representatives Norma Torres and Nanette Berrigan. And listen to Norma Torres's episode. I strongly recommend it. I mean, she was dealing with had to be PTSD after that event. Uh, it was still very fresh in her memory months later. So I just remember Kevin McCarthy kind of equivocating and, you know, you could tell that he was a little bit worried about what was going to go on, but he was still defending Donald Trump while his own life was on the line. And I will never forget that. So whenever I think about Kevin McCarthy, politicians are known for flip-flopping. They're known for opportunism and saying what's right at the given time. But I thought in a situation like that, if there was any time to speak the actual truth about the matter, that was the time to do it. And I did not hear that in his voice, Jessica. So thank you for enduring my story and we've survived it so far. And can you tell our listeners where they can uh, read your stories before we get out of here? Yes. So you can find my stories on MSNBC. And I believe I ended up on CBS streaming that later that day, uh, following Kevin McCarthy. And um, of course, you can find me on the socials at Levinson Jessica, Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok. You can find Joe at In Depth Day. And we really appreciate everybody who's listening. If you haven't already, please subscribe, rate, and review. Joe, I'm wishing you a great day and a little bit of rest. I know you've been working very hard lately. Yes, no rest for the wicked or weary, Jessica. Thank you for having this conversation with me. Thank you to everyone for listening, and have a great day, everybody. Mm-hmm.